From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. No topic of religion goes uncovered, including the Bible itself. My guest is Dr. Hal Tausick. He is visiting professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where he's taught master's and doctoral level studies since 1998. He also is professor of early Christianity at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia and co-pastor at the Chestnut Hill United Methodist Church, a progressive church in Philadelphia. Dr. Tausick is co-chair of the National Society of Biblical Literature's consultation on Greco-Roman meals and on the steering committees of the SBL's Seminar on Modern Theories and Ancient Myths of Christian Origins and the Greco-Roman Meals Consultation. His books include The Thunder Perfect Mind, A New Translation and Introduction, A New Spiritual Home, Progressive Christianity at the Grassroots, Reimagining Life Together in America, A New Gospel of Community, Jesus Before God, The Prayer Life of the Historical Jesus, uh, Reimagining Christian Origins, uh, Wisdom's Feast, Sophia in Study and Celebration. He's also a fellow of the Jesus Seminar, and as a participant in the Jesus Seminar, he's made two different presentations at my congregation uh, over the past years. they are called Jesus Seminars on the Road, and he, with another colleague, made two presentations. One uh, had to do with how early Christian communities worshipped and participated in communal life, including meals, and another seminar regarding early texts related to Christianity that are not in the 27 books we call the New Testament. And he's with me via Skype today because he has dared to add books to the Bible and has uh, created with consultation of others a new New Testament. Very exciting. Welcome, Dr. Tausig, to Religion for Life. I'm so glad to be here, John. How did a new New Testament come to be? Well, one might say that it we have to start by talking about the first century, but that uh, is a little bit too long an explanation. I'll choose the medium way in terms of length. Over the last 20 years, both in my own congregation, in my teaching of seminarians and doctoral students, and in speaking on the road around the country, I have had, as I did in your own church, I have had the occasion to present a number of the many recent discoveries of ancient Christian documents from the first and second centuries. And over these past 15 or 20 years, I've begun to notice that there was one common response that almost everyone had. First of all, there was a, people were deeply moved and said things like, as they heard the, uh, a, a document from early Christianity that they had not known about before and that was outside of the New Testament traditionally, they would say things like, I feel like I've found my long lost sister or brother. There's something intimate about this text. It sounds like it's of the same family religiously that I belong to, but it's something that I needed to know but haven't. Then As conversation proceeded, often these same people would say, with a little bit of an edge of anger, perhaps, why isn't this material in my Bible? Hmm. And so uh, 
with the modicum of intelligence that I have, John, it probably took me only 15 years to notice that actually there was an explicit request in all of these conversations with really thousands of people over the past decade or two. And that request was, could we not have a chance to read some of the best of these newly discovered documents from early Christianity alongside the traditional New Testament. And so I found some support from Houghton Mifflin and Harcourt, my my publisher, and they were able to provide support logistically for the following scheme. I decided that Deciding which books one might add to the conventional, the traditional New Testament on my own was just a little bit too much hubris. Indeed, it seemed to me that in the model of early Christianity, most really crucial decisions were made by what one would call councils. Sometimes they were regional and sometimes they were international but many of the primary decisions of the early churches in the first five centuries were made in in these councils of leaders. And so I asked Houghton Mifflin Harcourt if they would allow me to gather during a year leading spiritual persons from around the nation to help me decide of the 75 or so recently discovered documents from early Christianity, which ones would be best to add to the conventional New Testament. And that's what we did. We met during the year, um, and and finally in 2000, in early 2012, after going through many of these documents, this council of 19 spiritual leaders from around the country chose 10 books to add to the conventional New Testament. We do not call this the New New Testament. We call it a New New Testament. That is, there's no interest on my part or the council's parts to replace the traditional New Testament, but there is strong interest in seeing what can happen for us spiritually and intellectually when we add some of the best of the documents that people haven't read to the traditional New Testament. And so that has what's happened, and and this and this month the book was released to quite a bit of fanfare already. And so I'm glad to talk with you about it. You know, uh, as I was thinking about it, you mentioned 75 books, perhaps during that period of uh, 25 to 175 in the Common Era, that you could have, I suppose you could have put them all in a book, but that would really have overwhelmed um, the canonical New Testament. It it seems that by going ahead and and doing the work of of selecting 10, uh, that it really added uh, some spice and some context and some conversation partners uh, to the uh, canonical text. Yes, and it, it, and to say also, in the same vein as as you express, some of those seventy five aren't worth reading, okay. and and so it was really important for me that we get seasoned spiritual leaders of a of national reputation to look very critically and appreciatively at which of these documents might really be spiritually and intellectually powerful for people in the 21st century. So, yes, that that 
winnowing of which ones might be really valuable was very crucial, not adding spice only, and it does that, but I think it also added uh, a dimension of quality. And as as I was going through it and reading it, and, I'm, and you mentioned even that uh, the council didn't necessarily pick all of the ones that you might have picked yourself, and so I thought that was really um, an act of of, um, of grace on your end. I mean, you could have written the book yourself, but you chose um, in a democratic and communal spirit uh, to hear the voices of others. Mm-hmm. Yes, I in fact, in in June of 2011, as the process was getting going, I I secretly wrote down the books that I wanted to add to a new New Testament, and in in the end, I got half of them, um, and the and the other half were were ones that I in the council sessions myself mostly voted against. But in the end, frankly, John, there was a, a really deep satisfaction that this was a wisdom that was much broader than mine, my own. And um, this isn't, and I think the, the the point that I've also, this isn't just an academic, this isn't just the history of early Christianity. Uh, you talk about this as, uh, in fact, the subtitle of the book, A Bible for the 21st Century Combining Traditional and Newly Discovered Text, that there's a sense in which this serves spiritual needs of uh, of this time. It's, a, it's in a sense, a, a, I don't know if we would call it a church's book, but certainly a communal book. That's really the driving motivation for me, John, is that over these last 20 years, working with people around the country of very different lifestyles, I found that, in fact, it was these new documents, especially when taken within the context of of the traditional New Testament, these new documents were spiritually gripping for people. And so for me, the main thing at stake is, can this be a re-enlivening spiritual force for those both at the edge of Christianity and those who belong to the, to the, uh, to a deeply committed Christianity? If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. My guest is Hal Tozik, and he is the author and editor of A New New Testament, a Bible for the 21st Century, combining traditional and newly discovered texts. And this process of newly discovered texts uh, breaks open this heresy orthodoxy or stuff that's in the Bible that is true or that's not outside the Bible is not true or history versus parable, doesn't it? Yes, in fact, that's one of the the things that's happened to the few recently discovered texts that have come into the public uh, knowledge. There, this this bifurcation has happened immediately. Basically, ch- scholars, I think, such as uh, myself and uh, church people, immediately decided that. By and large, these recently discovered documents needed to be considered heresy. Something must be wrong with them that they weren't in the traditional New Testament. And and that was really much too quick a response because as we've had a chance in scholarship over the last 50 years or so to read some of these things carefully, it's become clear that not only are they not heresy, but some of them are the most winsome and powerful and spirit-filled documents from any circumstance within the first or second century. So 
yes, to, to jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, this must be heresy, turned out to, to be too quick a dis to decision. On the other hand, John, one of the things that has happened as some of these documents have come to light in the public sphere is that people have decided since they have, since many people have some problems with the traditional New Testament, some people have decided that, oh, the traditional New Testament must actually be all bad, too conservative, much too traditional, and all of these newly or recently discovered documents, they must be the ones that are perfect. And so there's been a deep romanticism of the newly discovered texts and saying, oh, they're probably much smarter or more spiritually sensitive than that which was that which is in the traditional New Testament. My proposal is something in between, that there are enormous riches for our thought and for our spirit if we read them together. So reading the Gospel of Mary alongside the Gospel of Mark can really give us a lot without us making idols of either the very new or the very traditional. And it also changes the story of how we think of early Christianity came to be. I mean, the books in the canonical New Testament are in order uh, to kind of— offer also a meta-narrative, I think it is, of how Christian origin, how Christianity came, and and uh, the idea of a new New Testament um, with insertion of different books, and sort of, uh, and you also put them in somewhat of a different order, uh, that really gives a different perspective of also how the tradition uh, in its uh, diversity came to be. Yes, I do think that, that this basically offers a broader picture of early Christianity than we've ever had. But I would hasten, John, also to say that there is very great diversity within the traditional New Testament. We sometimes don't realize how diverse the traditional New Testament is, mainly because Christian doctrine has chosen to overlook some of the diversity in its in its eagerness to, to propose that only certain things are to be believed or not. So, for instance, the Gospel of Matthew and the writings of Paul are quite difficult, uh, different on the issue of what, what is the purpose of Jewish Torah or Jewish law. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says that every punctuation mark, every letter of Jewish law must be obeyed whereas Paul only cites some of Jewish law as authoritative and in other cases says that the law is death. So it would have been really hard to find the author of the Gospel of Matthew and Paul in the same room without expressing great diversity. So there is very powerful diversity even within the traditional New Testament. What adding these 10 new books does is that it makes us aware of the diversity within the traditional New Testament, and expands the spectrum a bit. Well, tell us a little bit about these 10 new books. Uh, what are some of them, and what, what is their significance? Oh, uh, you, you asked the, the most exciting question, John. Thank you. So, the, uh, just briefly, these 10 books are, there are three Gospels. The three Gospels are the Gospel of Mary, which is a gospel with a woman main character. The only gospel we know in which a, the, a woman plays the major role. 
Then there's the Gospel of Thomas, 114 sets of sayings, all attributed to Jesus, about half of which we know from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and half of which are incredibly new. The Gospel of Truth, probably the most sensuous, beautiful, and joyful of any Christian writing of the first two centuries. Then there are three prayers, and the Council chose to add three sets of prayers um, in, in different books, mainly because it noticed that the traditional New Testament doesn't have much prayer in it. So they chose the prayer of thanksgiving, uh, a, a, a prayer used when the Christians gathered at meals. They chose the prayer of the Apostle Paul, a prayer about being called to the work of God in, in the voice of the Apostle Paul. And then the third book that has prayers from the very earliest part of the Christ movements of the first and second century is the Odes of Solomon. Now, the title is, is basically erroneous. The ti this title, like many titles of actually books within the existing uh, traditional New Testament, are have been added later. So the Odes of Solomon have nothing to do with the figure of S Solomon, but what they are are... 41 different prayers, or actually psalms, they have a voice so similar to the biblical psalms uh, the, in, in, in the Hebrew tradition. So these, in these psalms, the, the, the writer seems to be singing or praying joy and praise or pain or protest, all of the deep feelings we have and giving them to God, just like the Psalms do, the 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. But the amazing thing, John, about the Odes of Solomon is they have that same voice, but they have been what has been added is the voice and the life of Christ. So in the middle of the Psalms, you have Christ speaking and Christ praying and the story of Christ. So the Odes of Solomon are this powerful set of new prayers, basically the Psalms of Christ. There are, are two other documents that are very striking. The Thunder Perfect Mind. The Thunder Perfect Mind is a divine figure in the entire book of the Thunder Perfect Mind. A divine figure reveals herself. She reveals herself as a powerful, caring God, full of glory, but also very much like the voice of Jesus in the Gospel of John, a powerful voice that speaks, I am divine, but at the same time suffers greatly and is humiliated. And then there's the Acts of Paul and Thecla, a stunning story about a young woman who decides that after she has heard the teaching of Paul, that that's what she must do, that she must also extend the teaching of Paul. And she basically says, I am called to to work in the ministry with Paul as a teacher. The problem is that she is engaged to be married. And she is told she can't follow Paul because she must marry. And she protests and refuses two different very prominent men who want to have her hand in marriage. And instead, she 
persists in trying to be in the tradition of Paul. And finally, despite many persecutions, and despite the fact that Paul seems to forget to baptize her, she baptizes herself and goes out and teaches along with Paul. And then finally, two other stunning documents. One, the letter of Peter to Philip. This is a story of the disciples after Jesus has been gone and after Jesus has been crucified, and the Roman Empire is threatening to kill them as well. And they're frightened and they don't know what to do. But Jesus appears to them and says, listen, the main thing you need to do is to teach and to heal. And it, this may mean that you, like I, have to die, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. You don't have to think of yourself necessarily as a martyr. You must think of yourself primarily as a teacher of my words and a, as a healer. And finally, the last book in a new New Testament, the secret revelation of John. This, like the traditional revelation to John, is a big cosmic story, a battle between the good and the evil in the cosmos. But here, as the triumph of God begins to happen in the secret revelation of John, it's very different than the revelation to John in the traditional New Testament. Because here, the forces with God win out, but not by slaughtering others. There's no battle, there's no blood, there no, there's no curses. God's way actually wins out because people turn back to the love and life and light of Christ. So that's a brief overview, John, of, of, of these 10 books. Hal Tazik, my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, he is the author and editor of A New New Testament, a Bible for the 21st Century, combining traditional and newly discovered texts. And these texts also reflect uh, some of the uh, division or struggle or conversation that was going on in early Christianity. For example, uh, Dominic Crossan does a foreword in, uh, in A New New Testament. He talks about... Uh, uh, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, kind of as a as a countervoice uh, to uh, Timothy, and in, in, in particular in the roles of women and their salvation. Yes, we found out, John, as the council began to to think clearly about what it wanted to add, which documents w would be good and helpful to people in our day, that even though the traditional New Testament has strong voices for women's leadership, it also has strong voices against women's leadership. And that in our cultures, the tragedy has been that the strong voices against women's leadership get quoted far more often than the strong voices for women's leadership in the early Christ communities. And so I think there was a sense that the spiritual journeys of people in our day would be helped if we could add some of the documents from early Christianity that were strong advocates for women's leadership. So yes, Thecla is an example. Yes, the Gospel of Mary, which has the entire gospel framed around the, the figure of most probably Mary of Magdala. And then the Thunder Perfect Mind, which has really the voice of Jesus in the Gospel of John, but in a female gender. So there were 
there, there was a real concern within the council that the existing advocacy for women's leadership that really is in the traditional New Testament be underlined and could countervail some of the conventional cultural forces in our day that want to simply quote the Bible against women. Uh, can you um, give us uh, a, a set up and give us a little uh, taste of uh, one of these texts? Well, as you as you noted, John, we have tried to basically, in the order of a new New Testament, we've tried to basically respect the order of the traditional New Testament, but then we have spliced these 10 books into the middle of it. We haven't made the two 10 new books go to the back of the book as some kind of uh, appendix, but we've spliced them in. And so, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas is right alongside the Gospel of Matthew. But the first book the council chose to put at the very beginning was a prayer because it wanted this collection to be primarily a search for true spirit. And that prayer, never really made known to the public before this edition, is called the Prayer of Thanksgiving. And I'd love to read you uh, just a portion of it. The, The beginning of the Prayer of Thanksgiving says this is a prayer that they said while they were at meals together. And I'll just read you a, a portion of it. O name untroubled, honored with the name of God, to everyone and everything comes the kindness of the Father. We rejoice and are enlightened by your knowledge. We rejoice that you have taught us about yourself. We rejoice that in the body you have made us divine through your knowledge. We have known you, O light of mind. O light of life, we have known you. O womb of all that grows, we have known you. O womb pregnant with the nature of the Father, we have known you. O never-ending endurance of the Father who gives birth, so we worship your goodness. One wish we ask. We wish to be protected in knowledge. One protection we desire, that we not stumble in this life. Oh, that's a beautiful prayer. I, I'd never heard that before, before, uh, before reading it in the book, but I've never actually heard it read until you just did just now. And, and I can tell you, John, that in, in our church here in Philadelphia, we, we've been reading it for, for the last month in every service. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I just have about a little bit of time left, but I wanted to ask you the, the larger question of, of what is your hope on what this uh, what a new New Testament might be. Uh, you are not only an academic, but you are also a pastor and a worship leader. Uh, how, how do you see this playing a part in, in our communal lives? Thanks so much. John, for calling us back to the big picture, I think what I most want to do is to be faithful to those thousands of people that I have spoken with over the last 15 to 20 years who've said to me, please, can't we have a way in which we study and pray these newly discovered works alongside of the traditional New Testament? Can't we get a chance to renew our own spirits and renew our own thoughts by putting them together? And so I think my main objective is to broaden the conversation beyond the 
meetings I have in my church and the places I speak around the country and my classes to a more public conversation to see what kind of changes for the better inside us and among us can be made if we expand the the number of books that we place in some authority in our lives. My guest has been Hal Tosik, a professor at Union Theological Seminary, pastor of Chestnut Hill Methodist Church in Philadelphia, and editor of A New New Testament, a Bible for the 21st Century, combining traditional and newly discovered texts. Hal, thank you so much for this work, a very important work, and for being with me today on Religion for Life. John, it's been a great pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows, links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.